Episode 162. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. In 1993's Hocus Pocus, it is said that Bette Midler said it was her most favorite role to play out of all the roles she's played in her whole entire life, which is awesome because I love that movie. This time around, you are joined by the phenomenal and exciting writer-director Lee Cronin. At time of release, his new project, 13 Steps to Hell, starring Lulu Wilson and Rory Culkin, who we had on the episode right before this one. It's part of Sam Raimi's 50 States of Fright anthology series, exclusively on the Quibi streaming service, available now for a free 14-day trial. You can hit up Quibi.com. That's Q-U-I-B-I.com. Each episode explores stories based on urban legends from every state. Sit with us to hear all about that, as well as as much as he could possibly tell us, and he did so graciously, exclusives about the new Evil Dead film he's working on. Yes, he is the next to hold the incredibly coveted keys to the world of the Deadites at this point, known as Evil Dead Rise. We talk about his wondrous award-winning short film Ghost Train, his incredibly spooky masterpiece, The Hole in the Ground, and much more. Episode 162 starts now. This is Lee Cronin, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. Groovy. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a celebrated and visionary writer, director, and storyteller. He's been at the helm of many successful commercial campaigns in a series of evocative and award-winning short films, including Through the Night, Billy and Chuck, and 2013's remarkable Ghost Train that also earned the coveted Melier d'Argent for Best European Fantastic Short Film. His debut full-length feature was 2019's The Hole in the Ground, a mysterious and thrilling experience that premiered at Sundance that year, picked up several awards, countless nominations, and if you've had the good fortune to have seen it, now haunts you as it replays in your subconscious and rises to the surface when you least want it to, perhaps every time you pass by a mirror in the middle of the night. That's the thing with this creator's projects. They entice you through the beauty of their rich visual palette. They burrow into your thoughts with poetic and looping narratives, and they summon you into a place. A dark place where anything is possible. His latest project is part of Sam Raimi's 50 States of Fright anthology series exclusively on the Quibi streaming service. It stars Rory Culkin and Lulu Wilson. It's called 13 Steps to Hell. We are honored to welcome the conductor of this symphony of terror, Mr. Lee Cronin. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> hey, how are you? That is an outrageously warm welcome. I'm mightily impressed with your with your French pronunciation. It was very impressive. Thank you, thank um, you. Yeah, I don't think I can do quite as well. But yeah, thank you for that uh, extremely flattering and uh, warm welcome. It's it's awesome to be able to talk to you guys today. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, and congratulations on this exciting new endeavor and on the many exciting new endeavors you are embarking on. Thank you. Very kind. So we'll get into your personal relationship with the genre itself. What's the first memory you have of being deeply impacted by horror? Ben, it's also a really simple answer. Ben Gardner's head coming out of the boat hole in Jaws. That's the first moment that entertainment no longer was all about, you know, prancing and daisies for me. <laughs> um, and, and I think 
I was terrified to take a piss for a very long time after that. I, I could never imagine how a shark was going to come up through the toilet. But yeah, Jaws was Jaws was there. I am the youngest in my family by a long shot. Was it a happy accident? Is the you know the very nice way of of, of saying that? But there's like a nine year age gap between me and my next sibling, so I was heavily exposed at a very young age to things I shouldn't have seen. So, but certainly by nine years old, ten at the latest, there was the Shining was in the locker at eight. I think Jaws was like six or seven. Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two. I saw my dad showed them to me on VHS back to back around the eight nine year old situation. That was my father, by the way. Um, and Poltergeist was in there. I was a massive fan of Ghostbusters as well. So, yeah, it was from a very very young age the genre kind of got under my skin, and then you can't really escape your influences from there. Is there a particular cinematic experience you had, or a collection of such experiences that compelled you to bridge that gap and start telling stories on your own? That's a really good question. I think, the, again, looking back to, there was, there's lots of moments. I think I can I can fast forward to when I was 13 or 14 and all I did was talk about movies and my best friend's mother at the time said, you should become a movie reviewer. Now, with the greatest respect to that craft, it just wasn't for me. So I kind of thought, yeah, but I might actually kind of write and, you know, maybe I could figure something out. So around that age in school, my attention started to divert into, um, you know, more into uh, exploration and ideas and writing strange little things. But cinematically speaking, I, I still think I look back at my first ever viewing of The Shining as probably the thing that impacted me most. And I'll tell the really abridged version of the story if I can, because if this was over a beer, I could mince this one out for like half an hour. But I'll I actually I'll, I'll keep I'll keep it short. But I was shown The Shining by my uh, siblings on a Friday afternoon at like five o'clock in the afternoon. We got about halfway through pre certainly pre um, room two, three, seven. And I remember we broke, we were called for dinner at like 6 p.m. And I remember it was spaghetti bolognese because this day was so impactful. I can remember all the details. Watched the second half of The Shining. Still was kind of like, hey, I don't get it. You know, I don't really get what's going on here. Like, yeah, there's some creepy stuff that I didn't look at. But overall, I didn't really get it. And then for the next three or four nights, I was absolutely terrified. And that set this precedent throughout my life when a movie scares me. It takes me about three or four nights to wean myself back down to normal. And by the time I got back down to normal, my father had been away on business and he came back and was like, hey, what's the news? And the news was, well, it, like, he's been a pain in the ass for the last three nights. Why? Well, we showed him The Shining. He's like, well, that wasn't a great move. But by the way, thanks for reminding me, I haven't seen it since it was in theater. So I get, when was The Shining out again? I was like 80, 80, 80 right? Was it 80? Yeah, I think it was 81? 80. 80, right? So I probably saw it in like 88 or 89. And then... So my, my dad was reminded, like, oh, I haven't seen it. So and this uh, the most important lesson I learned about horror movie making was, was this, and it sticks with me to this day, was he rented it. I was in bed. He started watching it. And my bedroom was right above, like, our, our living room area. And I started to hear the movie again. And it haunted the crap out of me all over again, and almost even worse. And I absolutely learned at that young age the power of sound and music and how that film's imagery then was imprinted upon my brain. When I heard those sounds, all those things came rushing back. And it terrified, I could go, re repeat that cycle of, you know, three or four uh, nights of, of disturbance. And then a little capstone on it, about two years later, my father's away in business again. He returned. He'd forgotten to leave the room key in, in the hotel. He was in the US, actually, and he'd come back. And the room key was room 237, and it hung in my house for years with all the rest of the keys. No That's way. my shining wow. yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Were you uh, able to check out Dr. Sleep? I have seen Dr. Sleep. Yeah, I have seen it. Oh, we love that movie. Yeah. What did you think? What did you think of Dr. Sleep? I thought it was like, it's kind of like this 
hot dream the whole thing i found it really kind of quite intense i've watched it once and i feel like i need to watch it again because it totally tickled all of the things i love about the shining and then there was all of that kind of i hadn't read the book i hadn't read dr sleep so i suppose tonally there was these shifts and changes from say you know the, the kubrick world of the shining into into what what mike flanagan did which i thought was really really interesting but what he certainly seemed to do a really good job of was to balance for, i suppose for the camps that like different aspects of The Shining, if that if that makes sense. But I thought it was like, I, like I love I, being able to revisit the hotel was amazing. In the same way that when I watched Ready Player One, I nearly stood up in the cinema when I went into the Shining sequence. I was like, "That's it, I'm done, I'm out." You know, it was really, really great. <laughs> so, Ghost Train, right? About 16 minutes long, give or take. Youth Audience Award winner, Best VFX winner at Ithaca International in New York, and this delicious dark ride with this massive. Grim Reaper type character looming on top of it in this abandoned theme park. Take us a bit on the ride of creating that story. Yeah, that, Ghost Train was kind of the third, what I'd call professional short film that I made. I'd gone to film school and I kind of was more doing observational comedy and what, whatever, you know, whatever tickled my fancy at the time. And then when I met with my producer years later, we were working in a company like making the most banal corporate films you could imagine. But we were both like, we want to make movies. We really want to do this. This is like 10-ish years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And we then went on this journey where we made Through the Night and then Billy and Chuck. And each one was kind of increasingly ambitious. And then Ghost Train actually was one where I'd had a dream. And it was, again, it was about a friend of mine, the friend actually of the mother that told me I should become a movie reviewer, who was my best friend when I was about six years old till I was about 12 or 13. And we kind of went our separate ways. And I had this weird dream about him one night where he was in trouble or in some sort of trauma. And we were walking around inside this old abandoned kind of like Irish cottage. And on the walls in this cottage, there was these um, almost like kind of rubber effigies like you'd see inside a dark ride or a ghost train. They were like decaying and not particularly frightening. They were kind of silly. But then one of them just turned its head and looked at me and I woke up and I was like, that was it got under my skin, both thinking about this old friend who I hadn't seen in lots of years and some of the regrets about how friendship changes as you grow up. And then also that image. And I just opened up this folder and it happens to me sometimes and I have an idea and I just wrote down Ghost Train uh, on my, you know, opened up a folder on my on my desktop. And there was also a ghost train in this little, uh, you know, fairground in the small town that I grew up in, which I was always scared to get on. So it was turning around in my head for ages. And then my producer was like, what's next? And I was like, well, I have a folder called Ghost Train, but I don't know what it is yet. And I said, give me a week. And I came back with the kind of idea for this short. And, you know, what I've learned is the crazy thing about short filmmaking is partly because you're under-resourced, but like it takes as long as making a feature film. So that was like a year of my life creating that short and another year or more promoting it. And it opened up a lot of doors for me. And yeah, it was a great journey, but it's, it's, it's a very simple story, I suppose, about the present crashing into the past, regret, and then obviously the juiciness of the horror stuff that I love as well. But I like really nice, strong and engaging characters. And, and, and I'm really interested in looking at, um, you know, things in the past that come back to haunt you. How did you pull off the illusion of that theme park and that that big animatronic skeleton creature was that all digital VFX yeah. or was that practical? Did you construct that? It's a it's I, you know I only rewatched it a few weeks ago. I was I was in Finland with some friends and they hadn't seen it, and because I used to live in Finland and I was I was visiting for a while, and uh, they were saying we haven't seen or one of them hadn't seen Ghost Train. We watched it and genuinely and it's with the greatest respect to the VFX company who are called Troll VFX. They're actually you're a Finnish company as well, and they I was like this still really stands up for a short, like six years later, the kind of the VFX, but how we created it was 
we built the actual, uh, the you know, the cabin itself, like the kind of wooden structure. But then everything above that line is all digital, including the sky and the background of the fairground and the actual Reaper on top is all digital. But it's kind of how we we utilized it. And originally, at one point, we were just going to hire an old dark ride. And again, leaning back into the, the evil dead of it all for me, which is a great passion. Um, I was like, I don't know. I don't just want this big kind of plastic thing with spray paint, spray painted, like, you know, Frankenstein faces and, you know, ghouls. I was like, I want to do something. And I love the cabin from Evil Dead. So I was like, let's build it around something that feels a little more rustic and wicked. And that was kind of the starting point. So we pretty much had built just this cabin that was a facade, like something from Blazing Saddles and had a giant green pole sticking up to give us the right measurement for the Reaper and brought a VFX supervisor on set and did concept art and worked it from there. Oh my gosh, no, it looks marvelous. So you go yeah. on, you not only direct the hole in the ground, but you write it as well about a single mother and her son who move into a secluded house by a forest where this massive hole has appeared in the ground and the child wanders off yeah. one day and returns. Everything is slightly off from that point on. Where did the seed of that idea come from? That was another title. <laughs> I, I should come up with I should come up with much more creative ways of you know saying you know to try and explore these these ideas that hit me. But no, what happened with that was um, it was actually on the set of Ghost Train uh, when we were shooting, which was this time I'm going to say like eight years ago. Terrifying. I think we were shooting it. It was around Halloween. It was Halloween week, and again, my producer was in my ear. What are we going to do next? You know, and we I'd written a number of feature films that were all outrageously ambitious for a first time feature, you know, just to get something off the ground independently, you know, is, is, is tricky. So I just had this title. I'd read an article about a guy in Florida that was sitting at home watching the TV and his, on his armchair and he fell through into a small sinkhole, like a personal sinkhole in the ground Jeez. and he was not recovered and died. And I thought that's one of those, I don't mean to use the word awesome in a positive way because the man lost his life, but one of those awesome stories where it's like, that feels from somewhere else than the real world. And I remember just thinking the hole in the ground, like it's a very, there's something very, it's like a statement, you know, the statement title, which I quite like. And at the same time, I was, I was kind of toying with this idea about a, a mother and her son and a mistrust between them after, you know, trauma in their lives, personal trauma. And it kind of just, it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was definitely this, you know, swirl of ideas that started to mix together. And there was a few early misfires with the draft and, then I kind of got it where I wanted it to be conceptually. And I, there was a writing partner I was working with and a TV pilot. And I brought him in, Stephen, and we started to work it up from there. So and that was a journey. And, and that journey from short film world to feature film world, don't let anybody ever kid you. It is not easy or straightforward. Okay. So this is all making sense to me. So was Sarah's wallpaper, I saw it and I thought of The Shining. I was like, that's the carpet in The Shining. It is. And then the it overhead is. camera trick, that reminds me of The Shining too. Were those homages to The Shining? A little. Like I'm not, I don't hide my influences ever. I, I, I think, you know, I think a, a good artist is, is okay with tipping the cap towards the things that they love because it's part of who you are and you're concealing that you don't. The wallpaper is a funny one because I didn't ask for something like that. And what actually happened was the wallpaper was a pain all the way through the shoot because the wallpaper changes stages. It's normal. And then she's taking it down and then there's this new wallpaper. And it's those little things in a schedule that ruin your brain where you're like, how do we stick this in? And then it was just one of those days, the art department came in and said, we've been told tomorrow we got to do the fresh wallpaper scene. And I was like, okay. And they were like, what do you want? And I was like, I don't know. And they just rolled out these like eight options. I had an aspirin and one of them was that. And I went, I shouldn't, I shouldn't <laughs> pick it because it's so on the nose. But I, just, I was like, I really shouldn't, but I just couldn't say no. I just couldn't, I couldn't. If you go back and look at that film, 
the wallpaper is all incredibly bespoke. We got all these really old, I wouldn't say antique, but really old wallpaper. There's all these wallpapers we found where it's like, I love this. And they're like, we only have seven rolls of it. So you can only put it up on these two walls and got to shoot that way. The wallpaper became like a character in the movie throughout. But yeah, so you're correct in what you say, but I didn't plan it, but I did make the decision. Wow. That's even more awesome. It's divine. It's yeah. divine is what that <laughs> is. The Boo Crew will be right back. Yorga. Yorga. Count Yorga returns. Here is a vampire picture you can really get your teeth into. The return of Count Yorga. A vampire lover returns from the dead to seek a mate from the living. One never knows when he might encounter some of the more unusual truths that exist in this world. See the return of Count Yorga in color rated GP. You touched on this before, but you leave, in particular with that film as well, you left mysteries for the viewer that we take away from the experience of the film with us. To you, what is the power in constructing a certain ambiguity in a story and that balance of creating just enough answers as not to leave an, an audience frustrated, but as you said, haunted afterwards? Yeah, I think it is important. I think it depends on the story that you're telling. I don't think it has to be that way for everything. The Hole in the Ground is a very singular point of view story because no character in that film ever gets a scene to themselves. Sarah, it's all through her eyes all the way through. We never cut to the little boy or the neighbors or anybody else. So w- when you're a person with a singular POV in your own mind, like we, if we could all wake up with the clearest mind ever and understand everything, that would be great, but nobody can. So it kind of feels important that if you have a singular POV like that, that there is some ambiguity and there is some thoughts still going on and processing with the character by the end of the story. But also then from the impact point of view, like for me, one of the drives, and I've been, you you think about this as you go on the journey with your job and especially when you get to talk to, you know, awesome people like you and people pick and probe and you have to really think about the decisions you make and why you do them. And I kind of realized bringing it all back to those early days and the shining and watching, I remember even watching Poltergeist and one of my brother's friends went outside and like, I don't know, there's no, there's no mummy in Poltergeist, but he wrapped himself up in like toilet paper and came through a window. At one point, there was all this like, kind of messing that was going on. And as the young kids observing all of this, I thought everyone's having fun. And I'm going, this is cool. People are like scaring each other. And, and for me, being able to do something, and whether I haunt you afterwards to what degree, I suppose depends on your disposition. But my hope is you take it home with you. So I need to leave you with things to take take home with you. And my goal with the hole in the ground always that, you know, the sick twisted horror filmmaker inside me is I want, you know, a couple to go out or when I made it, like, you know, to go out and it's like, it's, it's date night. And, you know, they've left little Jimmy at home with the babysitter. who's three years old. They haven't been out a whole lot. They choose to go and watch my movie. They come home, they let the babysitter go and they open the door to little Jimmy and he's sleep looking cherubic <laughs> and they, and they think, what if you know what if <laughs> exactly so it, it is nice to give those things for people to bring home you know and i think that's part of what i like to do and that could be through subtle ambiguity it could be through questions it could also just be through pure impact as well it could be just a different type like for me 
people say, hey, like, you know, what sort of horror do you want to make? It's like, I'm interested in all spectrums of the genre from the whispery films to also the ones that just scream loud in your face, you know, and the hole in the ground is definitely a whisper. So I think a whisper has to kind of stay clinging to the back of your neck, right? Oh, very cool. There's a couple moments that really stand out in, in our eyes, one of which was just the decision, the simple decision of filming Sarah off the reflection of the broken side view mirror on the on the ground. That was amazing. Yeah. Or Noreen yeah, Brady yeah. just standing in front of the gates in front of the car. A scene like that, it's like a, a painting. It just sticks in the back of your head forever. Were those elements things that you thought of before and envisioned before heading into it? For the most part, yes. For the most part. The mirror on the ground like, was something, obviously the theme of reflections run through the entire film. And I think... And this is buried very, very deep in, the, in the, the metaphors that interest me, less the surface things. But that idea of her being a person that hasn't been able to quite look at herself to date was always really the idea of the mirror motif, as much as it plays a, a helpful plot point for me. What's really interesting sometimes is the decisions that you make. So she walks up into this cracked mirror that's come off her car, which was always the shot. We wanted to get that shot, but it wasn't until the edit that we realized in one of the takes. And it, we, it's only long enough that you barely see it. But that as she steps into that reflection of the crack, she splits into two Sarahs, which is so thematically relevant to the whole film. So within that idea that we had, there was also this tiny little happy accident that took place. But I think sometimes when you're working on something and there's a, there's a kind of consistency of vision and idea behind it, you allow those little happy accidents to kind of take place. So something like that was, was planned, but then there was this like little bit of bonus material that we got and then like Noreen on the road absolutely I think myself and my director of photography Tom Comerford I call him mine I don't own him uh, he's his own man but when we worked on it we we talked about one of the goals was whatever way this film works out when people ever see a frame from it at the very least whether they like the movie or not they know what movie it's from that was something we always felt was really, really important. And even through the production design and the costume choices and everything, we wanted that if someone saw a single frame of any actor from that movie, they knew it was from the hole in the ground because we wanted to create a unique world as best we could with the resources that we kind of had to hand. More recently, you began working with the legendary Sam Raimi, not only on this project for Quibi and 50 Days of Fright, but you've been tapped for the incredible task in honor of taking on the Evil Dead universe that you've been talking yes, about throughout yes. this really as as yeah, such a formative yeah. experience in, in your creative life. Tell us how that introduction was made and, and what has that been like for you? It's It's been super. Like, you know, it, I'm a fan and a filmmaker, so I have two jobs to do really with, with making that film. But the, the journey started kind of post Sundance early 2019. And a really important member of Sam's creative team kind of had seen the hole in the ground and said, Sam, you've got to watch this. So I'd flown into the US for three weeks, you know, well, obviously going to Sundance and then the whirlwind of meetings and kind of stuff that happens afterwards. And my last meeting leaving town was with Sam and a couple of his uh, development people. And it was genuine, like there was like a driver waiting outside to bring me to LAX to fly back to Dublin. And we met and you know, he's, he's exactly how you want him to be as a person as like, you know, he's, he's fun and he's engaging and, you know, he wants to talk about movies and he wants to talk about other things. And I remember sitting there and I hadn't dared raise really much about evil dead at all. And then I did towards the end of it, I, I suggested, do you want to do anything else with evil dead? And he said, absolutely. He goes, do you know any, you know, young eager filmmakers that, um, you know, would be interested. And I said, well, I'm flattered that you're calling me young Sam. So <laughs> on that basis, like, Sure, you know, I'm, I'd be happy to uh, to talk a little bit more. And then it just became this kind of very organic 
process of me because I'm a massive fan. What I didn't what, and what I can't do, and I can't say too much about it, as I'm sure you understand. But what I what I couldn't do was just go back and try and emulate what's happened before. I needed to find because of my own voice. I needed to find my own way into the story, which took a little bit of time, and to choose a course and a direction that would deliver absolutely for the fans. You know in spades what people want from an Evil Dead movie but also that has my identity and then also offers something of an expansion to the world that we're used to and to hopefully draw in a new audience so that process of finding what that could be took a number of months and continuous kind of conversations and then I remember it was the 5th of July last year when we kind of nailed it all down we're like right this is the direction let's go and then I was busy writing for a number of months that process and Sam and Rob Tappert and Bruce as producers are fantastically engaging and just incredibly supportive actually, which is the really cool part. So it's been a journey and it's, it was kind of a surprise to me when any news broke about it. Cause I nearly rather we were in production before we, uh, anything kind of got out in the world, but it's nice to know that there's a real appetite out there for it as well. So, you know, in the nicest possible way, I really hope I don't mess it up, but I remain confident that I'm going to do something that is both familiar, but refreshing, you know, and, and certainly um, what I can at the very least say is that I'm going to deliver a roller coaster of horror. That's really what the goal is here. Very cool. That's exciting. Well, yeah, I mean, sp- just speaking briefly on that, when you said everything that the, the fans expect from that world, from the Evil Dead world, what are those things that you think that is? Relentlessness, I think, is really important. Uh, you know, that sense of relentlessness. I think not stopping to explain too much is really important as well. And I think it needs to be extremely visceral, highly entertaining, properly scary. I think those are the things for me, you know, I look back, we all have our preferences when it comes to the Evil Dead universe, but the go-to for me is always Evil Dead 2. And I absolutely also love what Fede did in 2013, Fede Alvarez. I remember listening to his podcast with you guys and his passion is, is infectious as well. What he did was super. And I remember thinking around that time was like, I don't know if this is quite answering your question, but every Evil Dead film does something a little bit different. So I needed to find something different to do as well. So what, what are the common threads between them? I think is that, you know, that proper horror, it's not afraid to cross a few lines. I think that's important. And that's definitely spooked some people that have read the screenplay on the journey so far where they're like, is this too far? And I'm like, I'm really glad you're asking that question because if you weren't, we wouldn't be making an Evil Dead movie. So I think that's important as well to push boundaries ever so slightly. And and yeah, and then just to deliver 90 minutes of just pure roller coaster horror, I think is that for me, that's the, that's the thing that I stuck kind of, you know, on my wall when I was working on it was just like, remember to make this scary, remember to make it a roller coaster. And I think that will allow it to, to really stand up. And I think people, you know, and I'm a fan of it. There's a lot of existential horror out there. The world is a very, we are living in existential horror at the moment. So just to offer up some sort of balls to the wall you know, pure horror entertainment feels like it could be a really cool drink of water at the moment. And I mean, Bruce Campbell has recently gone on record saying that it expands the universe as far as escaping that cabin and potentially getting into a metropolitan city landscape. Is, so <laughs> can you say anything on that or, or is that still tight lift? Um, the way I always look at these things, is I never want to say too much because anything could happen. A, anything mm-hmm. could happen. And B, we could we could be ru- ruining a wonderful marketing opportunity. We all know how important that is to get a movie out in the true. world. But what, what I can say is it, it absolutely takes us to backdrops we haven't necessarily experienced the Deadites in before, certainly in the filmic universe. And it, and it also brings a more 
let's just say a set of characters that you don't expect to necessarily be interacting with the deadites, which I think is going to put people on edge quite quickly in the story. I'd love to say what that is. I really, I'd love for the movie to be out there. You know, I'd love to be able to say what that is. But um, I do think, you know, Bruce likes to um, to share some information and there's, there's always a seed of truth in what he says, even if he plays a few games also. <laughs> He's a wily guy. You can tell. Yeah. He's a crafty, <laughs> wily guy. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's move on to 50 States of Fright and 13 Steps to Hell. So that project, when did that come uh, across your plate? That actually, that, the, the start of that actually began, I after I met Sam for the first time, I then went back and I pitched Rob Tappert happened. I was back in LA and Rob Tappert was lives in New Zealand and happened to be in town and their development exec had said, look, I know you don't have it all figured out yet, but why don't you come into the room and pitch them where you're at with evil dead? Like give them the pitch. So I came into the room and I did it and they were like, perfect. It's yours. Sam was like, here's the car keys. Go. We love it. And I'm like, is this for real or is this Hollywood? I don't know what's happening here. And right after that meeting, I then had a meeting with Sam and his TV development exec. So I'm still sitting there spinning going, did I just get handed the car keys to like his, the universe that he built his career on, right? Like, did this happen? And then they started talking about this 50 states of fright thing and I couldn't concentrate at all, really, of what they were talking about. And so I left that meeting and they started to share a couple of scripts to me because obviously they would have created a lot of material um, and not all of it got made because there's obviously many, many stories and many states to be to be kind of mined. And then they sent me this this screenplay by Sarah who, who, who wrote it for 13 Steps and it just chimed with the sort of thing that I really like. And I was unsure about doing it, if I was being really honest, because I was busy developing a number of feature film projects at the time. I didn't necessarily feel like I wanted to go back into, in a lot of ways, these, you know, these quibby episodes on, on 50 States are really like horror shorts. I wasn't sure, but there was something in it that I really liked. And, I, and then one of the challenges was I'd never directed anything I hadn't written before. And I thought like this was a really good opportunity to do that in, on that smaller scale to kind of feel it out. So yeah, just engage. And I gave some notes on the story and, you know, added a twist that I thought could be really useful to what we were trying to do. And everybody seemed to engage with it. And then we were just, it kind of all happened from there. And, you know, it was tough. Like it was, you know, it's, it's, it's like trying to create a high end short film, but through a TV schedule, which is like very tight and it's always tight in whatever you make, but it was, it was definitely challenging, but brilliant crew. We shot it in Vancouver, great cast with, with Rory and Lulu and, and Christopher that's in it and, and all the other guys that were there. So it was extremely fun, but definitely a step outside of my comfort zone, which I think is worth doing as a filmmaker sometimes because I had nobody from my team and I'm a big believer in the film family you surround yourself with. So I like to go back and work with the people that I always work with. But I, I just jumped on a plane, you know, went to Vancouver, arrived with no luggage, which I didn't get for four days and, uh, and got to work. I think my luggage arrived and I was almost starting to shoot. And yeah, and we just went and did it and it was kind of seat of the pants, but but really, really fun as well. And I think I think 50 States is a really it's a it's a great idea and a great way of telling all these short stories, but I think there's some really great stuff on there as well. In terms of the filming process uh, for such a short form horror series, did you have to work closely with the writer Sarah Condrick Crawler uh, to sort out all the nuances? Yeah, that's and, and something I'm used to doing is I like to work with a co-writer, but usually I'm there from the ground up. But um Sarah it's absolutely embraced. She was really happy to work with me. She liked my work, which was obviously useful. And I liked her work. So yeah, we engaged and we, we had numerous phone calls. Even I, I'm a horrific rewriter in the sense that not that I'm bad at doing it, I can't stop doing it. So I had her brain melted even during production because she wasn't there for all of it. You know, she was where she, she, she lives elsewhere. So I was ringing her. I'd be finished shooting going, I need to change this and I'm going to change that. And 
she, you know, get her input. So she was incredibly supportive, massively engaging and always about just trying to put together the best version of the story that we could. I think like earlier drafts might have had a little bit more, a little bit too much going on. And as you are into production and all that sort of stuff, you've just got to hone in on the core of it. She was great. Really great to work. We're, we're definitely going to figure out something next year to start to develop together as well. That house was breathtaking that it took place in. Was that an actual, like a set or an actual location? That's a location. And that wasn't in the script that there was even a staircase. And we were looking at all these houses. Like usually when I made the hole in the ground, I've got like, we're looking at houses and I'm being the typical, you know, slow to make a decision because we're in prep and I'm looking at houses for six weeks. I had like a half a day to look at like four houses. It's like, which one are you going to use? Because, you know, you, we got to pick. And I just saw that staircase and then rewrote to accommodate the staircase into the script because it was such a big feature. And then it was so reflective of what happens in the story as well. So yeah, it's, it, that was a real house that we had to treat with absolute caution. And yeah, but it was a really wonderful place. I think we only shot there for, I think I had half a day or something. It was pretty intense. How did creating and designing something you knew would be consumed on a smartphone inspire innovation on your part in the way that you told this story? That is a beautiful question. And I don't have a brilliant answer. And I'll tell you why. It's because everything I create, I try to create with the utmost detail and care, no matter where it ends up. So no matter what, like I'm a believer in the big screen, despite this being on a small screen in in the case of 50 states. So I will still design it as if it's going to go on the biggest screen I can imagine. So I don't necessarily think about it in those terms. I just always think about how could I get it on the biggest screen possible and think about it in those levels of detail. Awesome. Lee, thank you so yes. much. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Guys, I, I love your energy. Keep it up. I love your energy. And uh, let's talk when Evil Dead is made. I'll be back. Please yes. talk again. We are so excited, yes. man. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 162. Special thanks to our guest, Lee Cronin. Follow at Curly Cronin on Twitter. That's at C-U-R-L-E-E-C-R-O-N-I-N on Twitter. Check out Sam Raimi's 50 States of Fright episodes exclusively on Quibi now, including the new tale directed by Lee starring Rory Culkin and Lulu Wilson. It's called 13 Steps to Hell. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at Quibi.com. That's Q-U-I-B-I.com. And definitely check out, if you haven't already, Lee's incredible films the hole in the ground and the short ghost train you can see it all over online it's about a 16 minute long adventure whimsical dark spooky as hell you'll love it production tracks for this episode provided by power man 5000 till next time it's the boo crew saying sweet screams thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast haunt the boo crew at tales from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at Tales from the Moon. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.